Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Leviathan Chronicles Season 2 The story thus far. McAllen has been sworn in as special council chair of Leviathan City and now shares responsibility for the city's administration along with Mayor Zachariah Center. Leviathan remains in peril as more of the city's infrastructure is failing and risk of collapse within the Great Cavern grows greater every day. McAllen has won the political battle with military Prime Officer Khan to recall all citizens on the surface back to Leviathan to aid in the efforts to defuse the computer virus that threatens the city's existence. But Khan has retaliated by imprisoning McAllen's closest friend, Anton, for crimes against immortality when he aided Senshin in the rebellion 70 years ago. Meanwhile, Tully and Oberlin are rescued by Black Door Enforcement Agent Celeste Harris from being stranded in the high mountains of Tibet. In exchange for information regarding Whip Roberts' whereabouts, the pair receive a transportation back to Alaska where they can regroup and plan their rescue of McAllen and Mai Lee. And back in the skies off the coast of California, the Condor is racing east with Lizette and Harlequin on board. Harlequin is in urgent need of medical care due to the serious injuries he sustained at the hands of Banu and is heading towards Sanctuary. And now, Chapter 29, Out of the Frying Pan. This is bullshit, Khan! Let Anton out of prison now! You seem to forget that I am sworn to uphold the laws and defense of Leviathan City. Anton is a fugitive. Laws are laws, McAllen, despite your insistence that they don't apply to you. You need to let him go, Khan. I need him on the strike force. You make it seem like I have a choice in the matter. Everyone has a choice, Khan. Not Anton. He gave up his right for freedom when he released a contagious toxin into the city. That was Senshin, not Anton. Then consider it guilt by association. Leviathan needs a star stone, Khan. Evangeline won't heal without it, and the city will run out of power to keep the pressure shield intact. I want Anton as part of my strike force so that I can find the aliens and bring a star stone back to the city. You are fucking playing with everyone's life. No, no, you are playing with everyone's life. Everyone in this city that you recalled into a mass grave. How dare you question my allegiance? If you had any regard for the responsibilities of immortality, you would evacuate the city immediately and save the I line- understand our responsibility. No! No, you truly don't, McAllen. What do you think you know about the surface world you lived in? How many times has a disaster been averted while you lived your mortal life in blissful ignorance? In 1928, who broke into Fleming's laboratory and replaced the mold cultures that allowed for the discovery of penicillin just months before a massive outbreak of pneumonia swept through Europe? In 1958, when the United States Air Force lost a hydrogen bomb off the coast of Georgia, 
who launched the underwater salvage team that prevented a catastrophic detonation. In 1983, who leaked crucial Able Archer documentation to undercover GRU agents, preventing a full-scale nuclear retaliation from the Soviet Union? And in 2008, who made sure that a vast conglomerate of offshore hedge funds continued to purchase US Treasury bonds and pump liquidity into global equity markets, thus preventing a complete financial holocaust? Leviathan has been the guardian of humanity for centuries. And you would shirk their responsibility for some romantic notion that you should somehow lead us out of darkness. Evangeline was a wise woman who understood the value of survival. She would have abandoned the great cavern, McAllen, and taken our chances on the surface. No, that is not what Evangeline wanted. You know that. And where does she lie right now? Hovering near death after being alive for a thousand years. Then give me my damn strike force. Let me find the aliens and bring a starstone back to Leviathan. Listen to me carefully, McAllen Orsall. I will not allow you to destroy Leviathan. We're on the same team, Khan. You have to trust me. Khan stared at McAllen intensely. Your strike force is waiting for you in the West Hangar Bay. I want Anton part of- I repeat, your strike force is waiting for you in the West Hangar Bay. You wanted the mantle of responsibility. Now go earn it. I've given you three of my best soldiers. I expect updates every six hours. This is my mission, Khan. That everyone in this city wants to succeed. Even me. Our lives now depend on it. So hunt well. And don't come home empty-handed. Because if you can't find the aliens, well, Anton will be the least of your worries. You are dismissed. Fucking asshole. You are dismissed. McAllen stormed out of the Prime Officer's office and marched down Hudson Avenue passing Hogglestone's Venotius Cafe and the holography gallery showcasing close-ups of shimmering, multicolored protozoans. She fumed over his arrogance and couldn't understand why Khan would deliberately try to sabotage what was effectively a rescue mission. She turned left on O'Hara Boulevard and stepped upon a gently turning crystalline screw that stretched upward over 200 feet to reach the Van Bruggen Skytube terminal that hung suspended in Leviathan sky. McCallum waited impatiently for a pushpod to arrive to whisk her to the other side of the city. If Khan wasn't going to release Anton from prison, then McCallum had to hurry to get over to the West Hangar Bay as soon as possible. She wanted to meet who exactly was on her strike force. Hudson Avenue was lightly crowded this time of day, and McCallum wove swiftly around the slower-moving pedestrians that were beginning to recognize and stare at her. That son of a bitch! He's happy Evangeline can't talk. Oh, I bet he's been waiting for a moment like this to seize power. He doesn't care if she lives or dies. McCallum's thoughts were suddenly interrupted by a light tap on her shoulder. Lady McCallum? Oh, yes, I'm... I'm sorry? Lady McKellen, I'm sorry to bother you, but... But it's my partner. His name is Richard Maroney, and he was injured quite badly in the cavern collapse. He was treated initially, but the med center remains without full power, and they can't drain the fluid that's been building in his brain. When... when do you think Leviathan will be back to normal? I... I soon. I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying right now Lady to... McKellen. What? Yes. Uh... Just McAllen. Mission recall of all citizens from the surface, but I'm worried about two friends I have living in Sardinia. Nobody on their Zephyr ship has been heard from. I, I wanted Soon, a small crowd began to gather around McAllen, and she could see others exiting the Venusius cafes, laboratories, and galleries along Hudson Avenue to approach her. While the crowd was not threatening, it was growing, and soon McAllen could feel bodies beginning to push into her. Just at the point when McAllen could no longer discern which of the clamoring voices was coming from which person, she felt a strong hand on her shoulder and a wide space swiftly open in front of her. 
Please, citizens! Lady McGallan is needed urgently elsewhere in the city. Please, if you'll just follow me, ma'am. One of Evangeline's honor guards, standing over seven feet tall, quickly guided her toward the terminal of one of the sky tubes still in operation. The crowd still followed her at a distance, watching her, trying to discern some news of Leviathan, or their own fate from her facial expressions or the way she walked or moved. The whole scene felt uncomfortably surreal, as the honor guard extended his hand to McAllen's to assist her into the push pod. As he did so, McAllen instantly felt something odd in her hand. As the pushpod raced north high above Leviathan, she realized that the guard had slipped her a small paper note. Time is short and we need to talk. Privately. Meet me at the Salty Squid. Sinter. Meanwhile, 70,000 feet above the Mojave Desert. How are you feeling? Tired. Weak and tired. There's more water in the cargo hold. No more water. I can't put anything into my mouth. Too painful. But Chiri, you need fluids. You need to drink. Harlequin stared back at Lizette, not appreciating the fact that the girl he raised from an orphan was now taking a parental tone with him. Despite his annoyance, he knew her intentions came from a place of concern, and perhaps even love. We'll be landing in less than an hour. When we get to Sanctuary, they'll put me on an IV. I'd be fine. You're not fine. Even if they fix you. You still won't be fine. Harlequin stared back at her for a moment, and then turned back to focus on the controls of the condor. We need to reduce our altitude for final approach. Where are we landing? Won't we draw attention landing in a plane like this? Perhaps we're going someplace where the outrageous is merely pedestrian. Harlequin, where are we landing? Vegas, baby. What? Are you crazy? Soon, the condor banked east over Mount Charleston in Nevada. The sun had long set over Arrow Canyon and the Black Mountains, and darkness now pervaded the sky, allowing the jet-black condor to blend seamlessly into the moonless night. Lizette felt a ripple of electricity ricochet through the ship, and then noticed their speed reduced dramatically, causing her to abruptly lunge forward, smashing into the back of Harlequin's seat. The Condor's primary engines began spooling down, and after racing at low altitude through the desert, the Condor came to almost a complete stop as the three massive hoverfans roared to life. We need to hide the ship. Well, you should have thought of that before you got a hankering for Pygo Poker and Red Bull. There's not much tree cover in this part of the desert, Harlequin. Maybe if we fly to the east a few miles. We're not landing in the desert. Lizette opened her mouth to speak, but then knew better than to ask the obvious question. Press the glowing blue button. Upon pressing the button, Lizette felt the entire cockpit slide backwards several feet, recessing itself into the body of the condor. The oversheath of tritanium slid forward over the top of the cockpit windows, replacing the view forward with LCD screens that displayed the landscape in night vision, along with an odd sonar overlay. Welcome to Lake Mead. The condor splashed down briefly, then descended 60 feet below the surface of Lake Mead, just north of Echo Bay. The ship silently cruised south for several miles before Lizette spoke. You had me steal a flying submarine? Actually, it's a submersible aircraft. And just then, the tiniest of smiles broke on Lizette's lips. It was not his voice, but it was her Harlequin. Maybe they can fix him after all. We need to hide the aircraft, so we'll leave it underwater. What? If the ship is underwater, how exactly are we supposed to get to Las Vegas? Harlequin spun his pilot's chair 180 degrees to stare directly at Lizette. How long can you hold your breath? 
30 minutes later, two figures emerged from the dark waters of Lake Mead, fully clothed and completely dripping wet. Lisette adjusted her headlamp and quickly found a small trail leading from the water's edge to a dirt road that ran southwest for two miles. You could have told me to pack a bathing suit. The pair trudged in their wet shoes, leaving long puddles behind them as they walked for the next 30 minutes. Finally, Lisette and Harlequin reached a large sign featuring a faded yellow smiley face with the words appropriately beneath it that read, Smiley Face Campgrounds. Harlequin rolled his eyes at Lisette and then extended his open palm towards her. She handed him her cell phone where he texted a series of digits and coordinates. Let me guess. Now we wait. Harlequin gave one pronounced nod of his head and then proceeded to use his pocket knife to carve a heart and his and Lisette's initials into the wood of the picnic table upon which they sat. After 60 minutes, an oversized white Cadillac Escalade limousine came to a stop on the dirt road beside the two of them. A driver uniformed in a dark jacket and tie with a matching chauffeur's cap exited the vehicle and approached the two figures standing in soaking wet clothes. Mr. Harlequin, I presume? Lisette spoke before Harlequin could do anything. I am Mr. Harlequin's aide. You may address any questions to me. The driver gave Lisette a quizzical look, then responded. Of course. I must, however, ask you for your account number with our service. Harlequin leaned close to Lisette and whispered in her ear. Account code 563-985-729-204 Epsilon. The driver turned away slightly and tapped into the smartphone he was holding. Account verification confirmed. Please, let me open the door for you. The driver opened the door to the white Escalade and Lisette was surprised to find a full array of life support devices inside, including a doctor and nurse who immediately began examining Harlequin and recording his vital signs. The limousine quickly left the smiley face campgrounds on the shore of Lake Mead and sped down I-5 towards Las Vegas. Harlequin, tell me what we're doing in Sin City. You've mentioned that there are sanctuary facilities scattered across the road. Why here? But then she realized that Harlequin was without a computer to synthesize his voice. She felt a quick stab of guilt before a vague sense of disgust overcame her. Lisette suddenly remembered that she despised Las Vegas. Endless buffets, Hawaiian shirts, obnoxious bachelor parties, and movable sidewalks transporting gawking tourists to and from vulgar casinos designed to take their money. Soon, the iconic neon cowboy Vegas Vic that stood sentry at the city's entrance winked gamely at Lizette, and billboards for Rita Rudner, Penn and Teller, Lance Burton and the Thunder Down Under dominated the blinking, shimmering landscape. Finally, she couldn't resist. Harlequin, I understand that you've been under a great deal of strain, but I really don't think this is the time to see Cirque du Soleil. And if it's showgirls, you really want... Harlequin turned to look at Lizette with an expression that conveyed that her sarcasm was decidedly not welcome. The limousine passed by the Riviera, the Palms and the Venetian before pulling in beside a large sign for the Encore. It traversed a long driveway bypassing the lavish casino and hotel entrance and turned right at a sign for livery vehicles only. It drove down a steep ramp into the underbelly of the massive building. Under the casino, the Escalade continued to descend further down several more ramps into the lowest levels of the casino superstructure. After 15 levels below, the Escalade came to a stop in front of a parking arm that quickly rose allowing the limousine to travel to the very back of the lowest level of the garage. A dusty chain-link fence cordoned off the last section of the area that contained a scratched, dirty freight elevator. Two men who appeared homeless emerged from piles of debris nearby, 
and opened the fence door to allow the Escalade access to the elevator. Amazing. Once inside, the Zep felt the floor drop as they descended even deeper into the earth and the bowels of the Encore Casino. After two minutes, the freight door opened into a gleaming white hospital that sparkled with technology and cleanliness. The rear door to the Escalade burst open and a cadre of medical technicians swiftly transferred Harlequin onto a reinforced gurney. Doctors rushed to find veins and insert IVs while two security guards quickly passed detection ones over Harlequin to check for weapons or explosives. He's clean. Let him through. As soon as the strange gurney sensed that weight was placed upon it, the two rounded sides extended upward and closed together like a clamshell over Harlequin's body. What are you doing to him? He can't see It's all right, dear. His condition is stable. The shielding is for his privacy and protection. Why protection? You just scanned him for weapons. We had an incident in China a few weeks ago, and now all sanctuary facilities are on high alert. We take the protection and safety of our patients very seriously. Come this way, dear. I can take you to the waiting room. I need you to stay there until the patient can be treated. The doctors wheeled Harlequin away further down the gleaming white walls of sanctuary, while the nurse led Lizette into an exquisite room lined with pastel-colored fabric walls and beautiful egg-shaped chairs with deep lavender cushions. An espresso coffee machine sat on a granite countertop next to a brittle water pitcher sitting on a chest of ice. The decor of the room contrasted sharply with the sterile ambience of the rest of Sanctuary, and it made Lizette vaguely nervous. Why are we in Las Vegas, Harlequin? What are you hiding from me now? Will, Will you, you break, break my, my heart, heart again? again? Magazines in English, French, Spanish, and Chinese were displayed on the ornate walnut coffee table. Lizette paged through them, absently wondering what the doctors were doing to Harlequin, and what he would be like when they were finished. Lizette sat in the small, pretty room for six hours before the same nurse re-entered and spoke with her. Hello, dear. How is he? Not to worry. Your friend is out of surgery and no longer in danger. He had some oral infections in addition to his... his other injuries. Will he be able to talk? Eventually. We're still administering an infusion of fresh stem cells and steroids that will accelerate his healing process. Right now, his mouth is encased in a liposid foam that's soothing his burns. He won't be able to speak for a while, but he wanted me to give you this. The nurse handed Lizette an envelope and then left the room. Dearest Lisette, thank you for saving my life. My sweetest angel, separating from you was one of the most painful periods of my life. I felt the absence of your smile and your laughter for years. Most of all, I missed the small glimpse of a normal life that raising you provided for me. But given the lives we have chosen, surely you must now understand the necessity of my actions. I had no choice if I wanted to keep you safe. Both my mortal and immortal enemies would have found you and most likely killed you in order to hurt me. I know that you can now fight your own battles, but it would have been unfair for me to expect you to fight all of mine. If I could now speak, I would tell you that I'm sorry. Sorry for the way I left you, and sorry for all the years I couldn't watch you become the talented, extraordinary woman that you are today. I am so proud. But regrets only dilute the present and future possibilities. In the meantime, get some rest and enjoy the lovely casino, my favorite in Vegas. The nurse will provide you with a room key to our tower suite room where I hope to join you in a few days. I took the liberty of making a reservation for you at Botero this evening. You must be famished and you'll adore the Dungeness Crab Anilotti. Tomorrow, make sure you head over to the spa for the utterly sublime dragon body treatment and facial. Pamper yourself now while you can, ma chérie. You asked why? We were in Las Vegas. Attached you'll find a schedule for the DEF CON convention. I'll send you instructions in a secure email shortly. We have a lot of work to do, and a city to save.
In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. On the other side of the world, a Bombardier Challenger 300 executive jet touched down on runway 23L at Kadena Air Force Base in Okinawa, Japan. Have you ever been to Japan, Captain Tully? You could say I have some friends here. With friends like those, who needs enemies? How long will we be on the ground, Agent Harris? Not long. They're prepping a C-130 to take us to Alaska. C-130? Can that plane land at the airstrip in Homer? It only has a runway clearance We're of... not landing in Homer, Captain Tully. What? What are you talking about? We had a deal. Yeah! The deal was to get you to Alaska. So where exactly are you taking us? Ielsen Air Force Base in Moose Creek. Oh, come on! Do you know how long a drive that yeah, is? Yeah, I, I won't worry about the drive, boys. You'll be staying on base for a little what while. What the hell are you talking about? We had a deal. Consider it a conditional debriefing. I want you on base while we hunt for Jason Sterling and Whit Roberts in New York. If your intel craps out, I'd like you somewhere that we can have another conversation. Look, lady, I told you everything I heard in Tibet. I can't give you any more than that. If Jason Sterling's plan changes and he decides to visit the Grand Canyon instead, that's not my fault. We should be airborne in the C-130 within the hour. I'd like you to use your remaining flight time to Alaska to think if there's anything else you'd like to tell me. The Bombardier jet taxied to a remote end of the airfield, where an aviation tug pulled the aircraft into an enormous hangar. Celeste Harris continued to stare at Tully wordlessly before rising from her command chair and walked down the jetway steps leading from the open hatch door. The two black door guards that had been sitting silently behind Oberlin and Tully rose as well and motioned for the pair to exit the aircraft. Tully and Oberlin winced as the cold air of Okinawa stung their faces. 
After luxuriating in the warm cabin air of the jet, the pair looked up and was surprised to find themselves in a gargantuan airplane hangar with a massive C-130J Hercules transport jet parked close by. A series of illuminated orange cones led a pathway from one aircraft to another. Along the cones was a perfectly formed line of Marines facing outward so as not to see or make eye contact with any of the passengers switching planes. Man, it's cold out here. I thought we already left Tibet. Wait, my sweater. I left my sweater on the plane. Are you serious, Tully? Tully sprinted back up the jetway, ignoring the black door guards that instantly unholstered their weapons, looking urgently at Celeste Harris for orders. The Marines kept looking sideways at each other, deciding whether this outburst was a sudden call to action. Celeste Harris raised her hand to calm everyone. Come on, Tully, hurry up. I got it, I got it. Sorry, it's, it's fucking cold in Alaska. I gotta stay warm. Tully re-emerged from the Bombardier jet, holding an olive green military sweater high above his head in victory. Move your ass, Tully. You pay for this plane by the hour. Two of the Black Door guards took their position walking behind the pair, thus discouraging any more delays. The group approached the C-130 and entered the aircraft through the rear cargo door. Two long rows of seats extended down the length of the interior cabin that were mostly filled with soldiers in standard fatigues. Right here, Tully. Oberlin, you can sit across the aisle. Tully and Oberlin exchanged a quick stare. Um, which way is the restroom? You just went earlier. Uh, let's just say I don't think that Tibetan food agrees with me. You see, normally I always travel with a little bit of kaopectate. <sighs> bathroom is towards the front near the cockpit. Oberlin unbuckled his seatbelt and walked urgently towards the front uh, of the plane. Tully turned to face uh, Agent Harris. You got yourself a little army here. These soldiers aren't part of Black Door. We're just hitching a ride on some empty seats on a pre-scheduled routine flight. Less paperwork this way. You mean paper trail. Time to buckle up. Anything else you want to tell me, Captain Tully? I hope you catch your bad guys. I seriously do. For your sake. For all our sakes. I do too. Um, this is a little embarrassing, but I don't think your toilet is operational. What are you talking about? Well... Let's just say that as the plane starts climbing, your feet might start getting a little wet and a little brown. Oh, shit. Jesus Christ. Airman, tell the pilot to spool down and get a maintenance crew here stat. I want this shit cleaned up and get that toilet working again. It wasn't me. I saw it was clogged, so I just flushed the toilet. Okay, we really don't need to know. No, what I'm trying to say is... I, I still really have to go. Actually, um... I kind of need to take a leak, too. Jesus. There are latrines at the far end of the hangar. Thanks. Uh, we'll be right back. Not so fast. Lieutenant, you and one of your privates go with these two and guard them. Make sure that they don't take too long. Yes, ma'am. Two soldiers in camouflage fatigues rose and followed Tully and Oberlin out of the rear hatch of the C-130. The four men walked down the length of the hangar, drawing stares from the remaining Marines that were opening the bay doors to allow the egress of the humongous airplane they thought was departing. At the end of the hangar, the four of them approached a door and entered the airman's locker room, where pilots changed into their flight suits. Off to the left was another door that led to the latrines. You don't have a magazine or anything, do you? Guns and ammo, uh, stars and stripes? Make it quick. Always do. Be out in a minute. Tully and Oberlin pulled on the door and entered the military latrine, closing the door firmly behind them. Okay, we got less than two minutes. What do you got? I ripped out some of the wiring from that fancy executive jet's toilet. I also found a couple of tampons. Tampons? Really? For plugging bullet holes or kindling for a fire. Actually, that's pretty smart. Thanks. How about you? I stole the fork from my meal tray on our first flight. I also grabbed a couple of napkins. And for the pièce de la résistance. 
Tully reached into his pants and pulled out a large stretch of yellow fabric. What the hell is that? Personal flotation aid. I ripped it off the bottom of my seat on the jet when I went back up for my sweater. Nicely done. First things first. Tully quickly slid to his knees and delicately stuffed the length of the flotation aid under the door leading to the latrine. That'll keep the water from leaking into the next room so we don't draw any attention. Now let's get to work. The latrines contained a row of four white porcelain sinks that stood opposite a row of urinals. Beyond the sinks were several toilet stores that were adjacent to the group shower facility. At the far end of the latrines was a large industrial window that was cracked half open at the top. Beneath the window was a standard electrical outlet. I got sink duty. You work on that outlet. Got it. I'll take that fork as an anchor. Okay, okay. We need to lay down a carpet. We need to... There. Tully ran over to the shower facilities and ripped off the plastic curtain that hung on his hook. Do you really think this is going to work? It's a long shot, but we don't have much choice. Hey, throw me back that fork for a second. Tully ran to each of the four sinks in the lavatory and quickly stuffed the fine linen napkins from their flight from Tibet into the drains of the sinks before turning the hot water faucets on full force. He then jammed his fork into the back of the liquid soap dispensers, prying them open and pouring their pink detergent into the steaming hot sinks that were now overflowing, allowing soapy water to spill onto the floor. How are you doing with that outlet? I need another 10 seconds. We're just washing our hands. Soapy water with bubbles quickly began to cover the floor of most of the latrine. Oberlin was sitting on the windowsill, connecting the fork to some wiring that was jerry-rigged to the disconnected outlet. Tully rushed to lay out the shower curtain directly outside the door to the latrine. He then hurried to push some of the soap bubbles over it. Two soldiers burst into the lavatory. Tully yanked on the shower curtain that the two soldiers were standing on. Tully had already leapt to the top of one of the stores and urgently called out to Oberlin. Do it now! Hit him, Oberlin! Oberlin dropped the electrified fork in his hand, wrapped in Tully's sweater, sending a powerful electric current across the latrine. The two soldiers tensed up painfully as their nervous systems were ravaged by the sudden surge in electricity. The men tried to get up, but their muscles were locked in spasms and no longer under their control. They gave one last futile effort to get to their feet and draw their firearms, but unconsciousness overtook them and the soldiers collapsed, dormant on the wet, soapy floor. Alright, nice work. Hurry, Tully. That surge won't keep them out long. Got it. Let's get their uniforms and get the hell off this base. Tully and Oberlin rushed over to the fallen soldiers and quickly stripped them of their uniforms before crawling out of the open window of the latrines. Agent Harris is no dummy. They're gonna put this base on lockdown any second. Look! Tully! Over there! The green army bus that resembled a 20-year-old greyhound belched a plume of black smoke while parked outside a small wooden building near the gated entrance to the base. A sign on the front read Naha City, Okinawa. We got to get on that bus, Tully. Let's double time it, soldier. The pair broke into a sprint to arrive in front of the bus just as it started moving forward. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't forget us. You almost missed your ride, soldier. Now hold up, I gotta scan your passes before I let you on. The bus driver awkwardly held out a small electronic barcode reader and brought it close to Tully's chest where his military pass hung. Tully lurched forward hey. and swiftly Whoa. knocked the scanner out of the Whoa. bus driver's hand, reducing it Take to it pieces easy. on the floor of the bus. Problem, he spun around soldier. to face a surprised Oberlin. What the hell is wrong with you, soldier? You can wait your place without shoving. We got a system here in the army. The Marines. In the Marines, where we wait in line. What platoon are you in, soldier? 
I'm gonna have your off-duty. Ah, no, it's okay. Don't chew his head off. I got myself another one of these dump scanners back at the depot. Half the time I can get him to work anyway. You just take your seat and let me keep my schedule here. Tully looked at the bus driver and then turned to shove his finger into Oberlin's chest. You're lucky, soldier. Thanks for helping me out back there. Oh, I used to have to deal with a brass ass like him back when I was in the service. Don't worry about it and just take a seat, soldier, so we can get a moving. Tully took a seat towards the back of the bus, while Oberlin found a seat closer to the front to avoid the perception that the two might know each other. The bus passed through the armed security gate of the base, while Tully kept his head low and pretended to fish for a buried seatbelt. In reality, he looked over his shoulder long enough to watch a flood of jeeps and military personnel erupt out of the hangar at the far end of the runway, with sirens sounding and weapons drawn. As the gate closed behind the departing bus, a small smile crept across Tully's lips. Less than an hour later, the army bus pulled into downtown Naha and came to a stop beside a white concrete building. They're going to tear apart this city looking for us. we got to get out of these uniforms. I know, I know. We need to get off the streets. What do you got in your pockets? The two men searched the trousers and jackets of the stolen uniforms they were wearing. I have about four or five thousand yen and a laundry card. I got about uh, three thousand yen. That ought to be enough. Enough for what? Enough to get out of sight. You see those MPs over there? They're walking this way. Taxi! Takushi! Takushi! A white taxi cab pulled over next to Tully and Oberlin, allowing them to quickly jump in. Makishi Fish Market. Oh, Tully, you can't be serious. We're not going to visit who I think we're going to visit. <sighs> Look, Oberlin, we got nowhere to go. And he's the only guy who can get us out of the country quietly. Yeah, but look at what happened the last time. Most of that is my fault, not his. And and I don't like it any more than you do, but it's not like we have much choice. Tully and Oberlin sat in silence and lowered their heads as their taxi passed the two MPs that were now questioning the driver and several of the servicemen who were on board the bus. Keep your head down. I know, I know. The dense, squawking traffic of downtown Naha City reduced the taxicab's process to a crawl, making each red light feel like an eternity. Tully and Oberlin stripped off their military jackets and sat in just their undershirts, trying to control their breathing, when finally a well-timed green light allowed their taxi to lurch forward and pass the MP. Jesus, that was close. I know. Look at my shirt. I'm soaked. Me too. The taxi wound its way through the congested streets, before finally turning on Kokusai Street and pulling over beside a Japanese sign with English below it that read Makishi Fish Market. The pair entered Makishi Fish Market and were instantly assaulted by the hawking calls of the fishmongers and butchers selling their wares. The pungent smell of seafood and the stink of fresh blood invaded their nostrils as they struggled to keep their heads down and push towards the back of the market. The carcasses of animals in various states of dismemberment hung from the ceilings of the tiny stalls under plastic buckets of water containing live frogs, crabs, eels and fish. Large bins of ice displayed an endless, multicolored palette of seafood in various shapes, sizes and forms. Even Tully, a professional man of the sea, couldn't help but stare at bizarre-looking fish that seemed to originate from another planet entirely. First, they passed under a sign that read Tekka, where auctions for bluefin tuna could reach tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars for one single prized fish. Soon they pushed their way through the crustacean section with vendors hawking for coconut crabs, slipper lobster and glistening sea urchins. 
Finally, towards the back of the market, lay a long string of dingy clapboard offices lined against the rear concrete wall. Over one of the grimiest offices hung a discoloured sign with faded painted letters that read caviar in English, and below it the same word in Russian, Chinese, French and Arabic. Tully took a deep breath and looked at Oberlin, who showed severe trepidation in his eyes, before opening the flimsy door to the office. Inside, a skinny Asian man wearing a Hawaiian shirt and aviator sunglasses banged on the aluminum table in front of him and leapt out of his chair. I don't believe my own eyes, big treasure hunter, Captain Jeffrey Tully. <laughs> I knew one day you'd come back to see me, huh? You come back to see your old friend Fish Egg Freddy. Welcome back, Tully. Welcome back to Japan. <laughs> been listening to the Leviathan Chronicles. The Leviathan Chronicles was written and created by Christoph Lepupka, produced by Robin Shaw, produced and musical composition by Luke Allen, directed by Nobi Nakanishi. For a full list of cast and crew, or to purchase the ad-free director's cut, go to leviathanchronicles.com. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. To discover more podcasts set in the Leviathan universe, go to leviathanaudioproductions.com or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Leviathan Audio Production Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.